0: You are now listening to the August 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saint. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles.
1: Hello Heart and Soul listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. The name Philip means lover of horses and it was a very common name at that time. The name of then famous Alexander the Great's father was Philip, so many people named their sons Philip, taking after the father of the great king. Seeing that Philip's father gave his son a Greek name Philip instead of a Hebrew name It could be that their family might not have been of a traditional Hebrew lineage. There is another Philip in the Bible. It is Deacon Philip who explained the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch as shown in Acts chapter 6. This Philip in the book of Acts is not the Apostle Philip, but Deacon Philip who was selected to be one of the seven deacons at the church in Jerusalem. And some people think that Philip wrote the book of Philippians just as John wrote the book of John. But that's not the case. The book of Philippians is a letter written by Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. The Bible records two events that are important in Philip's life. Let's take a look at them and learn the spiritual lessons the Lord gives us. After Jesus called Philip to be his disciple, Philip went to see his friend Nathanael. Here is the account of that encounter as described in John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In this passage, Philip is telling Nathanael, I finally met the Messiah whom Moses wrote in the law and whom many prophets wrote about this description of Philip in reference to the Messiah is as written in the law and books of the prophets it is an important reference because the Messiah was mentioned again and again in the Old Testament from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi it reminded everyone how the promised Messiah would one day come to the world and how the prophecy would be fulfilled later Jesus meets Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses is described for the law and Elijah is the representative of all prophets. So the fact that Jesus was with Moses and Elijah was the proof for the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When Philip was speaking to Nathanael, he was proclaiming that I finally met the promised Messiah in the Old Testaments. He is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. But Nathanael's response was lukewarm. It was not what Philip expected. Nathanael did not share in his enthusiasm, and his response was somewhat skeptical. Here is the first half of John chapter 1, verse 46. Nathanael was, in fact, pushing back on Philip. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathanael was being rhetorical. What good thing could come out of Nazareth? At the time, Nazareth was an insignificant countryside village in the north. It was so remote that most people asked, Where is that village located? When they heard the village of Nazareth. Perhaps this is what Nathanael meant if we were to read between the lines. What? Don't joke around. I might believe it if he was Jesus of Jerusalem. How can the Messiah come from Nazareth? You are so naive to believe that. Did he really look like the Messiah to you? But Philip did not become disappointed with Nathaniel, who was being negative and sarcastic. He did not argue with him. He simply told nathaniel this as written in the latter half of john chapter 1 verse 46 philip said to him come and see if philip had been discouraged by nathaniel's skeptical response and given up nathaniel would not have met jesus and he would not have become one of the 12 disciples but to nathaniel's negative response of what good thing can come out of Nazareth? Philip did not give up. He persisted and told him, Come and see. It was Philip's invitation to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you will change your mind once you come and see him for yourself. I went and saw, and I was changed after experiencing him. You will find the truth as I did once you come and see. Some of us think that we must have a lot of biblical knowledge in order to spread the gospel, so we say, I'm not equipped to witness to anyone yet. Sure, it helps if we are proficient in biblical knowledge, but evangelizing is not about debating or arguing with others using biblical knowledge. Evangelization is not about answering doubtful questions with clarity and authority so that those who are asked— Not be able to retort. Evangelization simply is an invitation to come and see. To those who respond negatively, whether they be our family members, friends, acquaintances, or even those who ask what good things can come out of this, we can tell them this Come and see. What more explanation is necessary? Come and see. Is sufficient evangelization is spreading the good news with a joyful heart by those people who discovered it first please come and you will change your mind come and see and you will find Jesus Christ who loves you please come it is so wonderful Philip teaches us three words we need to evangelize come and see Philip did not give up despite the skeptical response from Nathaniel. He still invited him to Jesus. I hope we will all be able to invite and bring those around us, be they our family, friends, or acquaintances, to Jesus. This concludes today's episode of the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.
0: Up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is unconstrained humility. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
2: Imagery can be powerful. And I was reminded of that this week as I was watching this movie, Saving Private Ryan. Um, it is a movie, if you, if you haven't seen it, you don't need to see it. It's about World War II, so it says enough, because the imagery uh, in a movie about World War II is going to be intense. But there's one scene in particular that the, the imagery is eerie to me. It literally shook me to my core, and it's the final battle scene. In the final battle scene, Tom Hanks and the crew, they have set a trap for the German soldiers. The German soldiers are off in the distance. They're in this long, narrow, like, a uh, street, and they're going to lure the Germans down this street. Now, what is so fascinating about this particular scene is although the Germans are coming, you can't see them. They're out there, and they're coming. Now, the reason we know they're coming is because there's two men, soldiers, American soldiers, up in the bell tower. Guys, remember this scene? Sending down hand signals to Tom Hanks, and they're saying, they're, you know, here come the German tanks. It's intense, You're, you just feel yourself, it's like, ah. So here's what the American soldiers do on the ground. They get behind mounds of dirt and rubble, and there's the street, hoping to lure them down this street. Now, what makes the imagery so powerful is added to this imagery is a little bit of sound. And the sound that you hear are the tanks off in the distance. You can hear the metal squeaking, and it's getting closer, and it's just so eerie. <laughs> Because if I th- I'm thinking if I'm an 18 year old kid and I'm sitting behind one of those mounds of dirt and I can hear a German tank coming and I know up there, somebody's saying they're coming, here it comes, there's a war about to happen. There's a fight that is about to happen. The imagery in this movie is incredible. And this scene shook me to my core. And it's a reminder that imagery can be powerful, especially dealing with battle scenes. Now, the reason I tell you this is because I want to read for you a couple passages. They're not even our passages for today, but I want to read you a couple of battle scenes from the Bible. And the imagery that we're going to see here is of God, Christ, as a warrior, a powerful warrior, bringing judgment, severe judgment upon people. The first passage I want us to look at is in Isaiah 63. And in Isaiah 63, Isaiah pictures himself as a watchman on the wall. Much like the American soldiers up in the bell tower, Isaiah's doing the same thing. He's up on a high perch, and he's looking off into the distance. And off in the distance, he sees something. He sees a warrior-like figure coming back from battle. The imagery is powerful. And we read about this in Isaiah 63. So listen to this imagery. Who is this, this is Isaiah saying, who is this that comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Bozrah, that's the capital of Edom. So this warrior-like figure is coming back from Edom. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. This warrior is strong. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, why is it? Why is your apparel red? and your garments like one who is tread in a winepress. In other words, peril is covered with something. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help as if God needs any help, right? I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the people in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Folks, that's powerful imagery. That's powerful imagery. And this imagery, of course, is depicting none other than the Lord God Almighty, having brought judgment upon his enemies. Now, here's why this is significant. Because this specific passage is what the Apostle John in the book of Revelation probably drew upon when he wrote this. Again, powerful imagery (laughs) of God in his glory, of Christ in his glory, in his splendor, in his majesty, coming in judgment. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Bring forth a royal diadem and crown him Lord A royal diadem is simply like a studded turban studded with jewels that you would crown kings in, in, in middle, uh, the Middle East back in the day. You would crown them with a royal diadem. so his eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems and Listen to this. I love this passage. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of course, this imagery is that of Jesus and that's kind of washed out, but it's that of Jesus returning in glory to bring judgment upon the earth. Now here's why all of this is so important. Because folks, today is Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. And think about the imagery of Christ destroying his enemies, bringing judgment upon those that deserve it. And yet on Palm Sunday, we are reminded that one of the key things that led Jesus to the cross was his incredible humility, which is so prominently displayed at his first coming when he came not as a warrior king, riding a white stallion or coming to bring swift judgment, but rather when he came riding a cult to come and bring eternal salvation. The imagery of that is powerful. Jesus could have come in judgment. He should have come in judgment, but he didn't. He could have come and wiped us all out, but he came and laid his life down. So it's on that note, church, it's my honor to take us to the Word of God today. We will be in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1, and we'll look at verse 11. Church, and those online, it's my honor to present to you the Word of God today on this Palm Sunday. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes is coming to you, listen to this, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden and the disciples went and did as jesus had directed them they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on and put on put on them their cloaks and he sat on them verse 8 most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna. Hosanna is simply a term of praise. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. Church, I present to you the word of God today. The imagery between the passage in Revelation and the passage in Isaiah 63, and this passage is incredible. In those other passages, Jesus is coming in glory and strength and power to bring judgment. He is a warrior like figure. In this passage, he comes in utter humility, riding a cult in his triumphal entry. Who rides a cult in a triumphal entry? And folks, that is why we say, I say, radical humility led to this, led to the cross. Dr. John MacArthur states it this way. It says, it seems incongruous and totally inappropriate that any king, much less the king of kings, should make his triumphal entry mounted on a donkey rather than a beautiful white stallion or a regal chariot. But that is what God's prophet predicted. And that is what God's son did because that was the divine plan. Folks, you wanna know what that's called? That's called humility without constraint. That's called humility without constraint. What our God did for us, what Jesus did for us. There was no conditions on his humility. He literally left the glories of heaven and came to earth. No conditions at all. Now God, this was all part of God's plan because God is rich in love and mercy. Think about it. Instead of sending his son to bring judgment, he brought him to lay down his life for you and for me. And the son in perfect obedience to his father humbles himself and he does it on a level that I can scarcely comprehend. And you want to know why? Cause I'm too easily impressed. I'm too easily impressed. And I bet you are. I'm not even being sarcastic with what I'm about to tell you. I think it's a great act of humility when I get out of my lazy boy and I come over and I do the dishes. That's great humility in my book. Do I hear an amen? And when I get up out of my lazy boy, I'm gonna groan and moan and make sure everybody knows I'm going to the kitchen to do the dishes because I want my reward. Do I hear an amen? Yes. I'm not even kidding. For, as human beings, we're too easily impressed. And one of the ways I, I do things and I go, wow, that was amazing, Bill. You're so humble. Listen, folks. if I find doing the dishes a great act of humility, how can I even begin to assume That I can grasp what it meant for the son of God to leave the glories of heaven, to take on human flesh and to allow himself to be falsely accused, horribly abused and unjustly nailed to a cross. How can I be even begin to fathom what that meant and the significance of that? But I will tell you this, it's humility without constraint. It is humility without constraint. There was no conditions on Jesus's humility. It wasn't, I will do this if those people are a little bit better or a little bit more worthy or a little bit more deserving. No. He went to an unworthy people deserving of nothing and humbled himself in the most significant way possible for you and for me. Notice, by the way, what our passage says. It says that he rode a beast of burden. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Isn't it ironic that the humble beast of burden carried the humble son of God, who in turn carried our burdens to the cross, amen? You know what that makes me so thankful for? That makes me thankful for that donkey. I never thought I would be so thankful for a beast of burden, a mule, a donkey. Who would have ever, if, if I said to you, what are you thankful for today? Folks, I'm thankful for a donkey because our Savior could have come riding a white horse bringing judgment, but he didn't. He came riding a a donkey in humility to carry our burdens to the cross. Amen? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that is how humble the God is that you and I follow. Jesus showed humility without constraint. Whereas the rulers of this world, you know what the rulers of this world do? They lord it over us, don't they? On both sides of the aisle. And in other countries people get power and they lord it over others. Folks, we have a king that did just the opposite. He gave his life away for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We have a king who washed people's feet and who spent time with outcasts and sinners. Folks, I may be willing to do the dishes for my family, but I'm not sure I'm going to wash your feet. I've seen some of your feet. (laughs) I don't want to touch him, but listen, even washing people's feet doesn't compare to Christ's greatest act of humility, which was humbling himself to the point of death and not just any type of death, death on a cross, right? Philippians 2, seven and eight, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is known as the humiliation of Christ. This is what theologians call the humiliation of Christ. He left the glories of heaven, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, he took on the form of man, took on the form of a servant, and then he became obedient to death, but not just any type of death, death on a cross. And that is significant. Because not only was crucifixion a terribly painful way to die, it was an incredibly humiliating way to die. Roman crucifixions, of course, were public affairs. And so you would have been hung on a cross for all to see. And that's significant, folks, because when you're hanging on a cross, you do not have control of your faculties. Just think about that. And if you are wondering, there is a very real possibility that Jesus was crucified naked which would have only added to his humiliation. And if it seems scandalous that I would even mention these things, then you might, we might not fully appreciate just how scandalous it was for the Lord of glory to be in that position in the first place. Folks, it wasn't just any type of death. It was the most pain, one of the most painful, slowest, long suffering, humiliating ways to die. And Jesus did that for you and for me. And here's the key. He wasn't forced to do it. You know that he went willingly. He went humbly to that cross. That's what it says, our passage. He humbled himself. Do you know why? Because it was humility without constraint. There were no conditions on his humility. It was a humility without constraint. Which would explain why the scriptures repeatedly, repeatedly speak of the incredible value of humility in the sight of God. Do you wanna know how important humility is in the sight of God? It's this important. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. She's a good mom. She's looking out for her sons. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Yes, you're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom, for whom it has been prepared by my father. And I love this. This is one of my favorite verses. And the, and when the 10 heard it, they were indignant with the two brothers. And you know why? Because they were looking at them going, there's no, if anybody's sitting next to Jesus, it's me. I'm way better than you. I am a far better disciple than you. Jesus likes me better than you. If anybody's sitting in his right hand, it's me. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your, say that word with me, slave for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many folks. This is truly incredible. The greatest in God's eyes is not the teacher, preacher, or elder. It isn't the biggest giver, the best attender, or the boldest evangelist. It isn't even the person who knows their Bible backward and forwards and has read it 50 times cover to cover. No, the greatest in God's eyes, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. And notice that Jesus uses that word slave. That's important because there's a distinction between servants and slaves in the first century. A slave was lower than a servant. A servant more or less could do whatever they wanted to do and work or not work as they so desired. But a slave had no such privilege. A slave belonged to someone else. They were the property of someone else. And it's exactly why we see the Apostle Paul calling himself what? A slave of Christ, a bond servant of Christ. That's what he's calling himself when he does that in the Bible. But here's the point, you guys. Here's the point. If you get nothing from my sermon, just get this. As believers, we are called to the same humility that Christ himself showed. And folks, that is a humility without constraint. That is the call of the gospel upon your life and my life. The call of the gospel is not to save your life, it is to lose your life. It is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow the Lord. And folks, we are living in a day and age where that is needed more than ever. And you want to know why? Because the internet has made everyone arrogant. Do I hear an amen? Everybody has a platform, everybody has a voice, and everybody's right. And so people are sitting in keyboards, bantering and fighting across this land and around the world, arguing their points, and trying to show why they're better than everyone else, and their viewpoint is better than everyone else. Folks, if ever there were a time for the church to shine, it could be now. Where instead of where we, we see a world full of arrogant people arguing to no end, there's a people, a strange group of people, a peculiar group of people who give their lives away, and who take the lowliest jobs and do the craziest things they, they serve, without constraint. They serve without conditions. That's the title of this message, by the way, humility without constraint. And folks, if you want to know what humility without constraint looks like, it looks like the Lord of glory, leaving the glories of heaven, taking on human flesh, becoming obedient, even in the most humiliating ways uh, to die on a cross. Now, here's the deal in and of myself. And I, I say this with all seriousness, In and of myself, I do not have humility without constraint, not even close. As a matter of fact, in and of myself, I almost have no humility at all. And I say that with all humility. (laughs) Listen, I I might be willing to humble myself to some degree. I do, you know, to some degree. But to humble myself in the way that Christ humbled himself is going to have to be a supernatural work of God in my life. And it's going to have to be a supernatural work of God in his church. But again... What does our world need right now? More arrogance, more arguments, more fighting? What do our friends and family need? Do they need those things? No, they need us to be the people that we have been called to be, a people who deny themselves, who have taken up their crosses, who aren't seeking to save their lives but give their lives away in service to others, who are willing to do the craziest thing, and that is practice a humility without constraint, but I know me. And in my humble opinion, there are just too many people not worthy of my humility. (laughs) And some of you are in the room right now. (laughs) Listen, I am more than willing to take a humble disposition towards those who I think are worthy of it or who will appreciate it or who will return the favor. That's me, that's Bill, that's Pastor Bill. That's me and my flesh, I know me. But folks, do you know what that's called? That's called humility with conditions. And I'm great at humility with conditions. I'm the master of it. Even though I've come to a savior that has shown me humility without constraint. It's like God says, I'm gonna humble myself so that you get everything. Here's humility without constraint. And I go, thank you for that humility without constraint. You know what I'm gonna do with it? I'm gonna turn around and show humility with conditions to everybody. Thank you for doing that for me, but I'm not gonna do it for anyone else. That's me. And I bet that perhaps as many of you as well. As you know, that we have not been called to show humility with conditions, but humility with constraint, like Jesus did when he rode that lowly donkey toward a humiliating death, all for a people who didn't deserve it and couldn't return the favor. Go figure. Let me ask you a question this morning. Here it is, where are you tempted to put constraints on your willingness to humble yourself? It's a tough question. It's a tough one. Here on Palm Sunday, if there's one word that defines Palm Sunday, it's humility. Perhaps it's with a family member you don't think deserves it. With this many people watching online and this many people in person, there's probably many of us that have family members that we just don't get along with. We don't see eye to eye. Perhaps family members that badger us or hurt us and have hurt us. And we're going, I'll humble myself just about before anybody but them. Or maybe it's taking on an assignment that you feel is beneath you, right? I'm willing to do anything. I'm just not washing anybody's feet. (laughs) Folks, that's humility with conditions. And I say that facetiously because there are many ways that we can wash people's feet daily but I don't know that I'll always do it. You wanna know why? Because I'm a pastor of a church, and that's beneath me, that's beneath me. Or maybe it's someone in society that you don't think, well, let's just put it this way, you think's unworthy. You wanna know what's so incredibly ironic? My guess, and this is gonna shock some of you, so brace yourselves. My guess, and this is probably true of me, this is true of me. My guess is that there are many Christians who will humbly and happily serve people like drug dealers and prostitutes, who will more than happily humble themselves to serve those type of people, but who wouldn't dare humble themselves before someone who holds a different political view than them. You know I'm right. A lot of us will humble ourselves before just about anybody, but not the, not the person on the other side of the aisle. Do I hear an Amen. I want to punch them in the face and I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, but that's where we are politically in our country today is people, the the two, the two aisles hate each other. But folks, that's not what you and I have been called to, is it? The other side of the aisle doesn't need more anger and more arguments, whatever side of the aisle you are on. What the other side needs is radical humility, humility without constraint. Humility with no conditions. I don't care what your political views are. I am willing to die to myself in order to serve you. Are you willing to wash feet in that way? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that hits home, doesn't it? Just got uncomfortable in here. We got those on the right side or my right side. Maybe you're on the left side, I don't know. Remember folks, this is so incredibly important. It is very possible to disagree with someone vehemently and yet serve them with Christ-like humility. And that's what we've been called to. You're never gonna see eye-to-eye. Listen, I tell people all the time, there's, I don't know, there's, I don't know that there's a pastor or theologian alive that I agree with all their theology. I don't even agree with all my theology. (laughs) So I'm not always gonna see, I'm not gonna see eye-to-eye. There's a good chance I'm not gonna see eye-to-eye with almost There's seven, eight billion people on the planet. Most of us aren't gonna see eye to eye with any of them. And in many cases, we're gonna disagree with them vehemently. But I can disagree with them vehemently, but serve them with Christ-like humility because that's what they need. And that's what I've been called to. I've not been called to win an argument. I've been called to die to self. And folks, what that's gonna take is a group of people who are committed to this, humility without constraint. So let me ask you again, where do you put conditions on your humility? With whom do you put conditions on your humility? Listen, I finished with this. We're five days, five days away from Good Friday and exactly seven days away from Easter Sunday. The challenge is simple. Proclaim the gospel, and here's the gospel. It is the king of kings who left the glories of heaven in utter humility. He took on human form and then became a servant, even to the point of washing people's feet. But if that weren't enough, He continued to humble himself, the humiliation of Christ, to where he was obedient even to the point of death, even death in the most humiliating way on a cross. That's the gospel. He died for you and for me, that whoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. But here's the deal. Don't just preach that gospel. Live it. Live it. Humble yourself before those that need you to do that for them. Again, it might be family members. It might be a neighbor. It might be somebody. But proclaim the gospel of a king who humbled himself to save the world and then go and humble yourself in the power of the Spirit as best you can with that same type of humility, amen.
3: for the peace
2: of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866 8999. That's
0: 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints.
4: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Now, the knowledge we see here is a knowledge in terms of a relationship. I know my wife. I know her. We have a relationship. And how do we grow in this relationship? It is through true knowledge of one another. And the only way we gain is we will see true knowledge Of Christ, it is through the Word of God. You see, we were separated from God because of sin. But when we were saved through faith in Jesus Christ, we entered into a real relationship where we are communicating together. He communicates through His Word to us. We communicate in the context of prayer. We have a relationship with the Living God. We know Jesus because He has opened up a relationship to the forgiveness of sins. Now, the reality is there are some who say, I know Jesus and I serve him. I do this. I do miracles, cast out deeds, whatever it might be. But if you are still in your sin, you don't know him. You may know of him, but you do not know him. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. You can know about him. You can know truth about him. But if you have not been cleansed of your sins, there is no relational knowledge. There is no relationship. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, wonder the kingdom. Hey, they call him Lord, right? One of the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven, someone who's been saved, as we see in context, who is able to hear and thus do God's will. Many will say to me on that day, this is judgment day, by the way, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Hey, we know you. We did it in your name. And did we not cast out demons in your name? We know you. We did it in your name. We spent our lives religiously doing stuff for you. And in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles in your name. Then I, Jesus says, will declare to them, I never knew you. We don't know one another. There is no relationship. Depart from me, you who continually do lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. If you are in your sins, still, you don't know Jesus. But when we are forgiven of our sins, we come into a relationship with Him where we know Him. But there is an increasing knowledge. And that's the sphere in which we grow in our relationship with Christ. Jesus knows us, we know Him, but it is His desire for us to grow in the grace and thus peace in the sphere of our knowledge of Jesus. It's all about Christ and a real relationship. If you're a Christian, there should be a real relationship between you and the Lord Jesus. It's not just simply Bible verses and songs and coming to church. And quoting something, whatever it might be, it is a real dependent relationship on Jesus Christ. As we were saved, so walk that way. It's by faith, right? So we're going to see. So Peter, and thus God, desires for us, true believers, to increase in the grace and thus peace in the sphere of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. By the way... The knowledge of Christ is crucial in understanding his grace and functioning in it. We abide in him, we trust in him, we walk with him, and his grace is sufficient in our weakness. And God wants us to grow in that trust, that reliance, that relationship with Christ. Now I would venture to say that everyone who names the name of Christ would probably say, "I want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. I want to grow. I hear you. I got it. I want to grow in that grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ." So how do we grow? How do we grow? Look at our passage back in Second Peter chapter one. We're going to see that God has already gifted us with everything we need for life and godliness through a real relationship with Christ. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Tremendous statement. Tremendous statement if we are willing to listen. It is life-changing. It is Christian life-changing if you're willing to listen. This statement points to the reality that God has already given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You know, once we realize what this is saying, it will change your Christian life if you are willing to believe it and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, it's important to realize that verses 2, 3, and 4 do not stand on their own, Two is the basis, the desire. Three expands upon that. It can't be spoken by itself. You could almost say it's one big long sentence going from two to four. You could almost say that. And so as you look at that, you see he's expanding upon this desire of God for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He says, seeing that, or you could translate that term as, seeing that is fine also. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has granted something already. Or just as. As his divine power. Or seeing that, recognizing something has already happened. It has already happened. Notice this word, has granted us, his divine power has granted us everything in regard to pertaining to life and godliness. This term has granted is an interesting term. It speaks of a done deal, but that done deal still affects you now. It affects you now. And also this word has granted is not your usual word for give in Greek. It is a more rich, a more full word that really emphasizes something given, not the gift, but emphasizes the generosity of the one giving the gift. It's a free gift. It's one coming from that with generous character. He's granted, overwhelmingly given. Very important. Think about it. If someone gives you everything you need, that's pretty gracious, isn't it? Think about any situation. If you have everything you need, that's pretty gracious. He says He has granted it, and it is given through and by a powerful God, seeing that His divine power, it's by His power, has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Notice the term everything. You know what that means in Greek? Everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And what's the sphere? Everything has been given. Again, life and godliness. Everything we need for this life everything we need for life, everything we need for the Christian life, everything we need for this life in Christ. Remember Colossians 3, Christ who is our life, everything we need for our relationship with Christ in this life has been given to us. Everything. And then he says also everything for godliness has been given. The term godliness used to you meaning well, so my meaning reverence exhibited in your actions. Speaking well reverence, it talked of a reverent attitude of worship for God which manifests in godly behavior. You see, godliness that comes from yourself is not godliness at all. That's hypocrisy. But true godliness comes from a reverence and a right relationship with the living God. It is his character manifest in us. It's interesting, this pleasing activity that speaks of godliness because of who God is functioning through us. In chapter 3, Peter parallels this term godliness with holiness. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, speaking of God's ultimate destruction of this first heavens and first earth, he says here, what sort of people ought you to be and what? Holy conduct and godliness. How should you behave? How should you behave if God would destroy this? He's patient. He's not willing for him to perish, but it ultimately will come, right? Everything we need for the Christian life to function rightly in our relationship with God has been granted already. You got to grasp this. It's already been granted. All of heaven's resources in the context, as you will see, of a relationship with Christ through the word are at the disposal for the believer, for life and godliness. Brothers and sisters, we scrounge around like beggars, yet God has already given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you believe that? We need to be reminded When you're struggling with sin, temptation, thoughts that are contradictory, sinful thoughts that bring death, not life, thoughts that are not godly, actions that are not. Remember, we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. But you say, how is it that we have everything we need? How is this possible? Notice the means in which we have everything. Notice the means. Again, back to our passage grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to godliness. And don't miss this, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Some believe that just by following a list of verses, I'm godly. That's not it. Some believe I can follow a list of verses or do godly things, and I'm doing the right thing for God. That's not the whole story. He says everything we need for life and God is found through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Tremendous statement. The means in which God's unlimited resources for life and godliness to live rightly in his sight and to be godly within our relationship with Christ one which we function by grace, the means is through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. You see, when we grow in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a minute through the Word of God, as we grow in that, we grow in His grace. We rely on Him more and more. We trust in Him more and more because we know Him better and better. We realize that Christ is everything and He has given us everything and He will take care of everything He calls us to do. It is all in Christ. It is all Christ. He is sufficient. You didn't think when you got saved that Christ wasn't enough. You believed He was. The same thing for this life and dependence on Him in every circumstance. He is sufficient. He is a sufficient Savior. He's sufficient for everything, for life and Godness. But it's in a relationship, the knowledge, a true relationship with Him, the knowledge of Him. Everything we need is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we're trusting and depending on Him, growing in our knowledge of Him through His Word, we have everything we need. The Apostle Paul prays for this, that we would know these truths. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, that we would understand. Ephesians 1, Paul speaking to true believers who have listened to the message, the gospel, their salvation, and believed and received the Spirit of God because I truly got saved. He says to them in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you in your love for the saints, that's the evidence, Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. We sing Jesus is our all in all. We sing all to Jesus. We sing tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Yet so often on a real time basis, we do not trust Him and believe what He has said in His Word that He is able to take care of everything if we abide and trust in Him. That we have been granted everything pertaining to life and God it's through a true relationship, the true knowledge of Him. What did Jesus say in John 15? Turn to John 15. I would venture to say most of our sin, when we want to do the right thing, is related to a lack of faith, by the way. A lack of faith in what God has truly said, a lack of trust in the person of Christ, and thus a lack of dependence in Him. We are so tempted, yet God is faithful. He's gracious. He's kind. A true relationship with Him. He understands. He intercedes. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He understands. Go to Him. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. He's saying you're saved. He's using this term in John. Clean means you've been cleansed, you're saved, you are already clean. He says because of the word which I have spoken to you. To believers, abide or remain, rest in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless the branch abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I, this is the person of Jesus. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And there's a lot of nothing going on in the church these days. There's a lot of nothing being done. We need to abide in Christ. And trust in him in a real relationship, not some phony, pious, hypocritical junk, but a real relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about Christ. It's about relying and trusting in him. And we have been given everything pertaining to life and God through the true knowledge of him, through the true knowledge of him. Stop going to the world for the things pertaining to life and godliness. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The world does not have what we need for life and godliness. And as we will see, even so-called Christians and Christians subtly go to the world's ways to resolve the things concerning life and godliness that God has said we have everything we need. Everything is found in Christ. In a relationship where we are depending upon him, growing in his grace, that means we're resting more and more in him. He is functioning more and more as we recognize our weakness. His power has perfected our weakness. His grace is sufficient. And as we're going to see, the knowledge that we have of Christ only comes through the word of God. Back in our passage, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Hey, that's the desire of God. Seeing that or as, just as, his divine power has granted. It's already happened and it affects you now. To us, believers, everything pertaining to life and God is through the true knowledge of him. Through the true knowledge of him. And notice how the him is described here. you got to ask, why is he described this way at this point? This way. Who called us by his own glory and excellence? Who called us by his own glory and excellence? Glory and excellence? What does that have to do with this? Him. What does it have to do with this? Well, what is God's glory? We sing glory, glory. We sing to God be the glory. We talk about God's glory. What is God's glory? When you think of glory what is it? Well the term glory speaks of weight. It speaks of weightiness and it's very basic understanding from the Old Testament and then in the New Testament Greek word as we're going to see God's glory is the weight of his character and attributes the tremendous realities of God that we do not or cannot ourselves have.
0: We are unworthy of Christ. And we have great worth because of Christ. Christ died for us, not because we are worthy, but because we are unworthy, and there was no other way for us to be made worthy. It wasn't a fair trade. The Son of God died, rebels live, that's not fair, that's grace.
5: My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love. And. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, wellspring of my soul and I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him.
0: looks away from self to Christ, becomes the ultimate satisfaction of the self. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. One of the most beautiful sentences in the Bible is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners.
5: And I rejoiced in my
0: breaks out in heaven forever, is not, look, traitors got in. Blasphemers are now priests. That's not the song. The song is, worthy are you. You were made to be made priest, to be made a kingdom, so that you could enjoy making much of Him.
5: And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. Of my soul, and I will trust in, Him no other. My soul is right in
0: Him We're unworthy of the cross because of the cross. We are worthy.